power? Where did, where did Paul, the Apostle Paul, receive power? Paul spoke of the power of the resurrection in, in Philippians 3.10. You can, you can turn there. Uh, how do we tap into resurrection power? Today, we begin a three-part series, all on one verse, a first for me. Philippians 3.10, the series is called Paul's Path to Christian Power. The verse says this, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death. That I may know him, Paul said. Paul recognized the power of knowing God. Power is the ability to act or to produce an effect. An engine has power if it can go from zero to 60 in 15 seconds. In the original language of the New Testament, power means force, as in the force be with you. Let it be noted, Pastor Tom made a Star Wars reference. It means miraculous power, abundance, ability, strength, and might. In the Philippians passage, Philippians 3.10, it's the word dunamis in the original Greek language. It's the, it's the same word used in Acts on the day of Pentecost to describe the power of the Holy Spirit and the miraculous events that followed on that great day. Paul knew the power of the resurrection. And the power of the resurrection was the key to everything that Paul did in his service of the Lord. From the working of miracles to the preaching of the gospel. Without the power, he would have been left to himself. Lord, I pray for this message and the series that you would speak to us about the source of the, the power that the Apostle Paul had, uh, others have had uh, during the apostolic era, yes. But beyond that, in the years that followed, all through the church age, there were those that, that had power. Lord, what's the key to that power? How do we tap into that power? Those are our questions today. I pray that you'll minister to us and give us those answers through your word in Jesus' name. Amen. To totally appreciate the power that would manifest itself in Paul's life, we have to first know what he was like prior to experiencing the life-changing power of knowing God. Who was Paul? The guy that we know as the Apostle Paul was first... Saul of Tarsus. Just like Peter was once Simon and Jacob, as Israel was formerly Jacob. And like those examples, the name change came with a heart change and a life change. But before his encounter with Jesus, Saul of Tarsus was zealous in everything that he did. He was from the tribe of Benjamin. And when describing himself in Philippians 3, 4 through 6, he said he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. 
regarding the law, a Pharisee. As far as zeal goes, persecuting the church. As for legalistic righteousness, faultless. Saul, later to be known as Paul, did everything he could to try and stop the growth of Christianity. Think of that. In fact, when Stephen, the first martyr, the first Christian martyr, the first person killed for loving Jesus, before he was murdered, when he was murdered, in Acts chapter 7, Saul, later known as Paul, was present and consenting to his murder. It's the first mention, in fact, in all of Scripture of the man that we will later know know as Paul, the man who would go on to write about half of the New Testament. The account of Peter's death, uh, I'm sorry, the account of Stephen's death is in Acts chapter 7, begins in verse 57. It says, They cried out with a loud voice, and they stopped their ears, and they ran upon Stephen with one accord, and they cast him out of the city, and they stoned him, and the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. And they stoned Stephen, calling upon God, saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down, he cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. It says in the King James, he died. Saul was instrumental in the persecution of the infant church, then known as the way. He hated the church, and he hated all that it represented. The day Stephen was martyred marked the onset of intense persecution against the Christian church in Jerusalem. And many believers fled the city and settled throughout Judea and Samaria. But Saul, in his zeal, was determined to hunt them down and rid the world of Christianity. His strategy was to obtain letters from the Jewish religious leaders to bring with him to Damascus, allowing him to bring any Christians he found back to Jerusalem to be imprisoned. So he went from house to house, dragging Christian men and Christian women out, having them put into jail. But one, but one day it all changed. It was the day that Paul had a run-in with Jesus. We'll talk about that a little more next week. Suffice to say today that from this point on, Paul would tap into a new power, a power far exceeding his own education, bigger than his impassioned personality and beyond his natural giftings. It was the power of knowing God. It all changed because Paul began tapping into a new source. Everything changed the day Paul discovered a power that would not only change his heart, but the heart of every man, woman, and child who would hear and receive the wonder of the gospel message. What could be the source of such power? Up to this point, Paul was driven by hate and, and religious zeal. And there can be little doubt that Satan was a driving force in the evil Saul perpetrated against the church. 
But now he would be compelled by love. Paul would say in Ephesians 3.19, And to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. The power of knowing God. Prior to his conversion, Paul had knowledge. He, he was indeed well-educated. He sat under the teaching of the famed Gamaliel. Gamaliel was a highly regarded Jewish scholar. He was a member of the Sanhedrin and well-schooled in Jewish law and tradition. He even served as president of the Sanhedrin during the Roman reigns of Tiberius, Caligula, and Claudius. Gamaliel was very influential and passed on much knowledge to Paul. But contrary to the old saying, knowledge isn't power, at least not true power. The power of God is what changes hearts, transforms minds, and moves mountains. And it comes only one way, only by knowing Jesus. The path to true Christian knowledge, interesting to me, the path to true Christian knowledge is the fear of God. The fear of God, Proverbs says, is not just the beginning of wisdom, which is kind of the common expression, but in another verse, it's also the beginning of knowledge. Contrast Proverbs 1.7 with Proverbs 9.10. Knowledge without God, in fact can be trouble. Saul is certainly an example of that in his early days. Knowledge puffs up, according to 1 Corinthians 8.1. Knowledge can lead to pride. Knowledge can lead to an inflated self-image. A little knowledge can be dangerous. I mean, I know a little bit about the human heart. You don't want me operating on you. The knowledge that is truly profitable is the understanding that the power to change a life is only in the person of Jesus Christ. The next question is, how do we tap into that power? And the key to that is found in John chapter 15. We'll spend a little bit of time there. If you want to turn there, it might be helpful for you to follow along. There's Bibles under the the uh, chairs in front of you. John chapter 15 and verse 1 says, I am the true vine and my father is the husbandman. God the father is the husbandman. A husbandman uh, is a gardener, a vine dresser, a farmer. Verse 2 says, Every branch in me that bears not fruit is taken away. Every branch that does bear fruit, he purges it that it may bring forth more fruit. In other words, every branch, every believer is worked somehow by the husbandman. The ones that, that produce fruit are pruned so they continue to be healthy and productive while the unproductive ones are, are taken away and disposed of. Verse 3, I'm going to read through verse 8. Now you are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, no more can you except you abide in me. 
I am the vine, you are the branches. He that abides in me and I in him, the same brings forth much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. If a man abides not in me, he's cast forth as a branch and is withered. And men gather them and cast them into the fire and they're burned. If you abide in me, verse 7 says, and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will and it shall be done for you. Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. So shall you be my disciples. We're to abide in Christ. And, and the word abide is a verb. It's an action word. It's something that we do. It's not just an idea or, or a concept. It means to stay, to dwell, to continue. It, it means to stay connected. It requires action on our part. If we want to bear fruit, we have to commune with God. We have to be connected to Him. We must abide in Him. We must be connected to the power source. We must abide with Jesus. Can you say amen to that? I think we all understand that. I don't know that we always know what it looks like or we don't know how to get there. That's what we'll talk about. You know, we all, we all have something that, that, that are known as mirror neurons in our brains. Mirror neurons are what cause babies to imitate behavior. You ever have a baby, you look at them, you make a face at them. Try to get them to imitate that behavior. Just two or three weeks after they're born, infants can imitate facial expressions. A fitting illustration after our nursery discussion. Beyond that, the discovery of these mirror neurons provided psychologists with an explanation for some of our behaviors. And, and you can experiment with this. If you're in a, an extended conversation with someone and you're facing someone, try crossing your arms. And, and watch and see if the person across from you crosses their arms. We, we tend toward imitation. It's, it's how we are wired. It's how children not only learn vocabulary. I mean, think of all the words that you use, that you never taught your kids the definition, but through observation, they pick up on it. The same thing is true with social norms. They, they, they watch and they imitate. They watch and listen and imitate. So here's the point of all that. We tend to become like who we hang around. Every parent knows this. 1 Corinthians 15.33 tells us bad company corrupts good morals. Or as the Living Bible says, if you listen to people, you will start acting like them. If we hang with the world, our spiritual mirror neurons kick in and we will imitate the world. If we abide in Jesus, we will be like him. If the branch stays connected to the vine, the branches will be nourished and strengthened and empowered. The branches, if the branches are separated from the vine, they will wither and die. 
I am the vine, Jesus said. You are the branches. He that abides in me and I in him, the same brings forth much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. So how do we plug into the power? That's the ultimate question. We always have to plug into a power source. There's no better example than your cell phone. If you fail to plug in, the battery goes dead, the phone dies. It doesn't matter if you have the newest phone, the best phone, the most expensive phone on the market. If you don't plug in, no power. Your car is another example. You have to pull up to the pump every once in a while, fill her up, or she'll grind to a halt somewhere along the highway we know as life. Only God, hear this now, only God is a source unto himself. Everything else needs to plug into a power source. We all have to eat. Food is our fuel. Without it, we run out of energy, we run out of strength, we run out of power. So it makes perfect sense to me in the realm of the Spirit that we have to make time. Church, hear me. It makes perfect sense to me in the realm of the Spirit that we have to make time to plug into our power source. Without adequate time with the power source, we will run out of gas spiritually. We become ineffective spiritually. The branch cannot bear fruit of itself, verse 4 says. We need power from an outside source. Jesus is the vine, and we are the branches. Jesus is the source of all of our power. Knowing Jesus was Paul's pathway to Christian power. So how do we tap into that? The short answer to the key question, how do we tap into the power? The short answer is prayer and Bible study. I think I preach the same sermon every week. It just comes from a different verse and takes a little different shape. But I think it's significant to note the Bible records Jesus spending extended periods of time in prayer. Luke 6.12 says it came to pass in those days that he went out into a mountain. Speaking of Jesus, he went out into a mountain to pray and he continued all night, it says, in prayer to God. Mark 1.35, in the morning, another day, another occasion, in the morning, rising up a great while before day. You know what that means? Early. He went out and departed. Jesus got up early, rose up early before the day began and departed into a solitary place, the Bible says. And there he wrote his next sermon. No. There he prayed. Extended periods of time in prayer. And if we believe the Bible is the Word of God, then we should be reading it. 
Romans 10, 17 says, faith comes from hearing. And hearing from the word of God. In Romans 1, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power, that's what we're talking about today, is, is power. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. To who? To all who believe. What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news. It's the word of God. The word of God is power unto salvation to all who believe. If you want the power of God to reside in you, then read the Word, then learn the Word, then study the Word, love the Word, invest in the Word, hold tight to the Word of God. How do you tap into the power? How do we find Paul's path to Christian power? The short answer, spend time in prayer and spend time with your nose in the Bible. That's the short answer to how you get the power. That's Paul's path to Christian power. But let's take another look this morning as I kind of begin, don't get too excited, as I begin to bring this to a close. This isn't the conclusion. This is the pre-conclusion. Nine lessons. I like lists. You know that. Nine lessons from the first eight verses of John 15. Nine lessons from the first eight verses. Number one, verse one. God is the husbandman, okay? Very clear there in verse one. God is the husbandman. The husbandman, church, is in charge. It illustrates God. Here's a profound Bible truth. Deep. God is in charge. Okay? Did you get that? God is in charge. Some of us have yet to figure that out. Number two, verse two, Jesus is the vine. So in this garden or vineyard of which God is the husbandman, Jesus is the vine. Jesus is the source of nourishment and life. Jesus is is the vine. Number three, believers are the branches. That's verse three. If you want power, we need to be attached to the vine. We need to abide in the vine. As believers, if we want life, we need to be attached to Jesus. We need to have rich fellowship with Jesus. This is what sets us apart from the unfruitful. Abiding in the vine. Number four of our nine lessons from the first eight verses of John chapter 15. Number four, every fruitless branch is cut off and cast into the fire. That's verse two and verse six. God has a mission. Hear me now. God has a mission. If you are not part of God's mission, then you do not have the heart of God. Okay? If you do not have the heart of God, he will weed you out. If you are unconcerned with the lost, you're simply not part of what God is doing. Think about it. It's not really about getting saved. We make it about getting saved, but it's not really about getting saved. That's, that's just the beginning. 
It's really about God's mission. And God's mission as the husbandman is to bring in the harvest. If you don't care about that, I fear for you. If you don't care about that, then I question your salvation. Number five, every fruitful branch is pruned or purged that it might be more fruitful. That's verse two and verse five. So think of this now. If you are on board with the mission of God, if you get it and you know that it's it's not about you, right? So if you, if you understand the mission of God, if you have the heart of God, which is the mission of God, which is the harvest, then, then you know it's not about you. It's about the mission of the husbandman. In other words, if you are a productive, fruit-producing, fruitful, profitable, prolific, gainful branch, then he will prune you. Perhaps, church, perhaps this explains some of the trials and tribulations of the believer's life. Right? The husbandman is keeping us productive. He's keeping us dependent, making sure that we're attached to the source of our power. Not not to punish us but to get more fruit out of the branch, to to maximize the harvest, to get more production out of the believer, not to get saved, but because we're saved. And the pruning process is painful. I've told stories before about my neighbor Al, who lived two houses down from where I raised my kids in East End. He was the alley foreman. He ran the neighborhood. He lived in the same house 40-some years. And, and one day, I was out in the backyard, and, and, I had, I had, and, and I was as green as green could be as far as this stuff. I had a, somehow stumbled across some pruning shears, and I had this tree and a little tree in the backyard. So I went out there, and I'm, I'm lopping some of the ends off. And Al, as only Al can, came over and said, What the blank are you doing? I saw I'm, I'm pruning this tree, Al. He, give me those. I'll show you how to prune a tree. He says, first of all, you go in the house and you get in a fight with the old lady. <laughs> and then you come out with a little attitude. And Al, Al starts cutting this thing down to size. By the time he's done, the thing's about a third of its you know, original size leaves me to pick up, pick up all the branches. But, but he, it, it points out to me that the pruning process is painful, but there's an end game beyond the pain. It's called the harvest. And the harvest is what fulfills the mission of the husband. Number six of our nine lessons from the first eight verses of John chapter 15. Number six, every branch is made clean. It's made pure by the word, verse three, that he might sanctify us, it says in Ephesians 5, and cleanse us 
with the washing of water by the word. So we're, if, if we're not, well, think of this. We're not, we're not clean based on our own deeds. We're not clean. We, we are clean because we're part of the vine. Romans 8, chapter 1, uh, verse 1, chapter 8, verse 1 says, There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If we are not abiding in the vine, we will be judged by our own unproductive, unfruitful, sinful lives. But if we are connected, then we're washed by the word. Number seven, branches must abide in the vine to bear fruit. The vine is the source of power and fruitfulness. You have to be plugged in just like your cell phone. Number eight, the branch cannot produce fruit on its own. The, hear me, church, it seems basic. This is important. The branch cannot produce fruit on its own. You cannot run your car without fuel. You cannot water your garden unless the hose is attached to the faucet. It ain't rocket science. Number nine, we must bear fruit to bring glory to God, verse 8 says. We must bear fruit to bring glory to God. There's an epic battle, church, taking place in the heavenlies. It's the battle of good and evil. It's God and Satan in the ultimate cage match. The battle is judged based on the harvest. And that's why the husbandman cuts away the unproductive branches and prunes the fruitful ones. It's all about the harvest. We must bring forth fruit in order to bring glory to God. So, how do we bear fruit and bring about and help to bring about the harvest? It starts by abiding in the vine, plugging into the power source. That's, that's our part. So, what does that look like? Number one, pray. 2019, just getting underway. We just finished last night the week of prayer. It was my favorite week of prayer. I've been the pastor here for 10 years. Every year, and even before that, we had the week of prayer. The first full week of January, every year we gather uh, here at church and, and we spend time in, in prayer. This was my favorite week of prayer ever. And I, I don't know what that means exactly, except this, that, that I believe God wants to call us back to prayer. If we want to tap into the power, if we want to know where Paul got his power from, it came from spending time in the presence of God. And that's not just a, a flippant prayer, oh God, help me. I've, I've prayed that prayer plenty of times. It's not a bad prayer. But I think of those extended times of prayer that Jesus spent. Hey, if Jesus needed it, how much more do I need it? He spent time in the presence of his, of his heavenly Father. So it's all, it's all so basic, you know, and, and sometimes I do feel like I'm preaching the same message over and over again, but it ain't rocket science. How do you tap into the power? 
It's not some formula that only the spiritual elite can get a hold of. It's not some Bible code that if you read every third page, the tenth letter. It's really simple. The most unlearned can grasp it. Pray. Second, read the Word. Spend time in the Bible. It's the Word of God. If, if we knew God wrote an editorial in the paper, hey, God wrote an editorial in the paper, we'd all read it. Number three, stay, stay connected. Stay connected at church. In the New Testament, it's the word koinonia, great New Testament uh, Greek word koinonia. It means fellowship. We need fellowship, rich fellowship. And fourth, deepen your involvement. So pray, read the word. Pray, number one. Number two, read the word. Number three, stay connected at church. Number four, deepen your involvement. So how do you deepen your involvement? Uh, the Take Five course is one way. That's our discipleship program here at church. We have three different groups going on uh, right now. Uh, we'll run another one in the future. Next time it's in the bulletin, check the box. I want to I do the Take Five program. The Take Five course. An another way to deepen your involvement, plug into a connect group. Middle of next month, we'll be starting the next round of connect groups. We're going to look at the uh, events from the life of Peter. Plug into a connect group. How do you deepen your involvement? Lead or host a connect group. And number four, the, the letter D, I guess, under point four, get involved in ministry. How do you deepen your, your involvement? Get involved in ministry. Find a place to serve. Serve somewhere. It's Paul's path to Christian power. And it runs right through Jesus. Paul's path to Christian power runs right through Jesus. And so does yours. It's the power of knowing God. Pray with me. Lord, thanks for the simplicity of this. I, I marvel at it often. It's really simple. It isn't for the few. It isn't for the, the long timer. It isn't for the, the, uh, the one that is hyper-spiritual. It's really for all of us. It starts with time with you. We can't build a good marriage without time together. We can't build a good friendship without time together. And so we have to spend time with you. We have to pray and read the word. It's the power of knowing God. And so I, I travel back in my mind through time. The beginning of creation when Adam and Eve walked in the garden with God. They knew him. They knew him intimately. And then sin entered the picture and, and there was this great gulf and man was separated from God. And as much as we deserve that, you weren't content with it. And so you sent Jesus 
2,000 years ago, Jesus came into the world, became one of us, so that we might have an opportunity again to know God. He bridged that gap. And so how do we tap into that? We pray, we read the word, but it really starts with giving our life to you, confessing our sins. Sin is a great barrier between us and you. And so we need to deal with the sin issue. And so we confess our sins. We say, Lord, I'm, I'm a sinner. I acknowledge I'm a sinner. I fall short of the standard that you have for me. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And so today we acknowledge that. And we receive the work of the cross that enables our sin to be washed away. The Bible says the one who knew no sin became sin for us. We thank you for Jesus, that, that he was willing to do that on our behalf. We receive that. And the Bible says in John 1, 12, to as many as receive him, he gives the power, there's that word, the power to become a child of God. So Lord, we acknowledge we're sinners. We receive the work of Calvary's cross. We repent and turn from our sin. And we make a choice today to begin to live for you. Lord, I pray for the one that's here today that this all really resonates with. Lord, my prayer is that they would turn their back on their old life and just begin to live for you, the one who loves them more than they could ever imagine, the one who loved them before they loved you, Thank you, Jesus, for that wonderful truth. We surrender our lives to you. We choose this morning to begin to seek your face, to pray, to spend time in the Word, to stay connected at church, to deepen our involvement, to find a place to serve. Lord, that's what you've called us to because we, we will not bring glory to you unless we bear fruit. The only way we can bear fruit is by being connected to the vine. We thank you that it all works together. We bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and worship together.